Welcome everyone listening in to From Our Vantage Point, Vantage Point's podcast recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations, where we talk all things not-for-profit related. My name's Rowan King, I'm the Interim Communications Manager at Vantage Point, and the new From Our Vantage Point host. Recently, I had the pleasure of sitting down and learning from two wonderful leaders in the not-for-profit sector, Zara Ismail of Neighborhood House and Upkar Singh Tatle of Engaged Communities Canada Society. We chatted about how their work addresses the issue of food insecurity, and how food insecurity connects to issues such as poverty, racial biases, and data amalgamation. First, I'd like to introduce you to our lovely guests, and then we'll hear what they had to say. Upkar resides and works on the unceded territories of the Semiyamu First Nation, where he oversees research, data collection, and the development of healthcare innovations and experimental development R&D projects at Oxus Machine Works Limited. In addition to this, he is an academic supervisor who provides research consultancy services to government, health authorities, academic institutions, and centers for disease control. Upkar is also the executive director of Engaged Communities Canada Society, as we mentioned, and has delivered targeted solutions on climate change, substance use, homelessness, food security challenges, and youth challenges. His academic credentials include certifications from the Justice Institute of BC, degrees from the University of Victoria, and the University of British Columbia, where he's helped establish the Scientific Creative Quarterly. Upkar is the current Vice President of the Diversity Board of Director and one of the founders and current treasurer of the South Asian Community Hub. He is the host of the Hypatia Talks podcast, co-founder of Sundar Expo 2022, a commissioner with the Vital Statistics BC, and a member of the Radius SFU Social Innovation Hub. Welcome, Upkar. Next up, we have Zara Ismail, who is the executive director of the vibrant South Vancouver Neighborhood House and has been since 2016, and is the first executive director of the Marple Neighborhood House, which opened under her leadership in 2019. With a background in community development, her current portfolio includes food security, settlement and integration services, licensed child care, children and family development, youth leadership, seniors wellness, and adult day programs. Prior to her current role, Zara was the general manager of Ibis Phoenix, a transitional shelter and training program in Toronto. She has also worked in international development with Street Kids International, Haven Haiti, and BRAC with responsibility for programs in Haiti, India, the Philippines, Colombia, Sierra Leone, and Ethiopia. Zara was recognized as one of business in Vancouver's 40 Under 40 in 2019. Welcome, Zara. So this topic came about in a conversation I had with you, Zara, discussing complexities of identity, and then we sort of got into how that subject ties into your work with Neighborhood House, and you brought up food insecurity, especially in the context of COVID-19. We'll get into that soon, but the reason I wanted to highlight food insecurity is because not only is it one of the most tangible ways to show where we are at as a society, you know, is everyone meeting their nutrition needs is a pretty good way of showing where we're at in terms of equity, but it's also something more and more of us have on our radar. Some of us have noticed shortages in the grocery store when it comes to the staples we're typically used to picking up and putting in our basket. And as the climate becomes more unpredictable, so does our crop harvesting, right? But as the working class starts to see elements of food insecurity pop up, we have to recognize there are many, many people right here at home who understand food insecurity to a whole other level. So many of us who are fortunate to have food on the table every evening think of food insecurity as something happening in other countries, and it's very much out of sight, out of mind. If relevant, I'd love to hear both your perspectives on what food insecurity actually looks like in the communities you serve. You know, it's interesting when we do talk about food security and food insecurity, it's it's often pigeonholed into one community. Um, it, it's showcased that there's one community of need and it's kind of this one uh, monolith that, that doesn't have these dis- intricate layers of, of culture and diverse needs. And so perhaps that's another, you know, if there could be an advantage of the pandemic is that it really blew up people's perceptions of what 
potential or ongoing needs are for communities. Um, you know, it was readily apparent that a lot of the foodstuffs and sources that communities rely on weren't readily available, especially when it came to diverse communities. A lot of those foods were being secured from overseas and elsewhere, and they just simply weren't arriving at our shores. So suddenly you had a completely different demographic of individuals who were relying on um, food banks and food distribution, but simply weren't getting the same kind of food that they they were accustomed to getting prior to the pandemic. Um, because it, it was a new reality for a lot of people providing food security. They didn't realize that well, hold on a second, there, there's going to be a whole different community that's expressing a need that perhaps we're not equipped to handle. Uh, in addition to that, it was just, it you know, responding to a need that you knew persisted before was, and that had only been amplified by the pandemic. So it was kind of this horrible elixir of different things going on at the same time. Um, but coming out of it, the one thing you do realize really quickly is that, um, you know, as much as we lean on the benefits of being a diverse space and we do benefit greatly from those diverse voices and, 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 and the uh, variation that that brings forward, so we should be ready to serve it when it comes time to when, when it comes to their needs as well. Nice. Sorry, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with um, with Oprah's comments, and I also um, like I can tell you a little bit about South Vancouver Neighborhood House's experience. Um, South Vancouver Neighborhood House is the neighborhood house for three large neighborhoods in Vancouver: um, Sunset, Victoria, Fraserview, and Killarney. Eighty percent of our residents um, in those areas are racialized, and uh, 55, 56 percent of them are newcomers to Canada. And um, one of the things that we recognized a couple of years ago is that access to um, emergency food is not available in our neighborhoods. And the burden has always been put on the racialized communities that I'm representing um, to commute out very far to access emergency food because they weren't really being um, included and certainly not centered in conversations about what food security should look like. So we entered into a partnership in 2018 with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank to, to host a, a food bank hub location at South Bend Neighborhood House. And what we saw through that process um, is that the numbers went from their previous location of 160 um, participants or clients to over 500 um, over the span of two years. And so, you know, when the services aren't available, a lot of community members won't be asking for them because they're not aware of what's available. Um, as soon as you bring a service and if it's delivered in a culturally competent um, way, in a respectful way, uh, people recognize that, you know, I could actually benefit from that. So for me, it's, and I need it. And so for me, there's a question of um, equitable access. And a lot of that for me also ties into anti-racism because we shouldn't be making assumptions about what communities needs are or aren't, we should be asking community members what it is that they're looking for um, and what they would benefit from so that we can have equity for all groups across um, Metro Vancouver. So um, specifically with our communities in, in South Vancouver, a lot of people when they drive around our neighborhoods, they see larger homes, they see, um, you know, 
they don't see people who are obviously street involved. And so there's an assumption made that, um, you know, a lot of the new immigrants who come in, they come in with lots of money. There's all of this um, dialogue around various ethnic groups coming in and how a lot of assumptions made about who they are, what they have, what they uh, need or don't need. And to me, those assumptions are based on biases. They're not based necessarily on truth. And in our community, larger homes, yes, oftentimes, but lots of people living in basement suites or in um, coach houses, large families, lots of migrant workers, lots of vulnerable newcomers who are living in very precarious circumstances, but they're not visible and they're not advocating for themselves. They're not asking for any support. Um, and so this assumption, when you drive through our streets and say, oh, you know, no, this neighborhood doesn't need anything. The people are doing fine. There's no poverty. Well, if you scratch at the surface, there is vulnerability, there is poverty, and we need to be seeing people for where they are. So when COVID happened and um, these neighborhood-based food distribution programs uh, rolled up, the only spaces to access emergency food in Vancouver ended up being at the downtown east side, Queen Elizabeth Theatre and Mount Pleasant Community Centre. In the early days of COVID, there was no way that we were going to be asking some of our more vulnerable community members, you know, seniors, people with compromised health, to get on a bus and travel an hour, 45 minutes each way in public transit. You, you remember, you know, last spring, it was very um, scary for people to be going out in public, let alone on public transit. Things have come a long way since then, thankfully, but we needed to do something to respond. And so that's when we started first an emergency food security program. And we've now rolled that into a permanent, well, it's a temporary site, but it's a permanent program, which is a local love food hub and spoke, where we're doing our best to provide um, culturally appropriate and customized grocery boxes for, for community members who are in need. And uh, the idea is to help them build their food security, the connections, access, and also agency so that they can be part of the solutions to food security um, issues in their community as well. So all of that to me, I mean, majority of the people that we're supporting are racialized newcomers and um, in a community that's otherwise quite underserved. One of the things I want to highlight that you said was um, how there are a lot of biases about uh, who is living in poverty and who isn't. And I think one of the things is that we have a, a lot of assumptions about what poverty looks like. And a lot of the time, it just it doesn't look like how we expect it to, right? Um, so you kind of touched on this a little bit, Zara, about how much there's been an inflation in the need for um, for services. And I just kind of want to get an idea about how many people were really talking about how have the numbers changed over the pandemic and how do you see a future trend emerging if you do? Well, I, I can start off here. Um, I know in the emergency food distribution program that we started with, again, our numbers, we started at 75 bags of food a week and now we're serving around 1,200 individuals every week um, through a series of partners. We're, we're working with a lot of spoke agencies, so partners in the community. We know that, I mean, we have a waiting list. We know that we're not reaching everybody who has food insecurity in our neighborhood. Um, or across our neighborhoods. I think um, the data that we're able to access is not great data. You know, we've got demographic data, but a lot of the information about uh, food security is self-reported. And we know that when we're only asking the questions in English, there's a huge percentage of our population who can't participate in those surveys. So their data is missed right off the bat. So I don't actually have as good data as I wish I had, um, you know, for food insecurity in South Vancouver. I do know that compared to 
you know, if you just assume a similar level of food insecurity, there's definitely less food assets in South Vancouver. So you can kind of extrapolate that there are unmet needs, assuming the same level of food security as other parts of the city. But I don't have the data that I need to be able to make the best argument possible <laughs> for why there needs to be more support in neighborhoods like mine. No kidding. So you're you're serving largely, uh, you know, groups of people who are English second language, correct? Yeah, primarily. Yeah. But all of the questions that are being asked in the data are asked in English. Well, not by us. We're trying to ask the questions um, in the languages that people um, are most comfortable with. And we have a lot of staff who can speak different languages. But all of the, um, you know, the health authority or provincial or municipal data from big, big, well-funded surveys that we can access, it's primarily um, English wow. information gathering. So we, we know that we're, we are not gathering a, an accurate picture. And then, you know, if that's how the data is collected, you can kind of understand why so much of the food supports are um, focused on regions where there's more English speakers, right? Mm -hmm. Because their voices and their needs are clearly captured through that type of data. In our neighborhood, um, if people can't participate, then it looks like there's a rosier picture, but we know that that's not necessarily accurate. That probably also helps to inform biases. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Akkar, do you have anything to add about um, numbers and inflation? Yeah, for, for us, the numbers are a little bit challenging because um, we didn't, we never embarked to do food security. Uh, that, that's not part of what we were doing for the decade that, you know, we existed as a nonprofit society. However, the communities we serve, given that they are at risk and they are facing key vulnerabilities, when the pandemic clamped down, Food insecurity is one of the things that got highlighted for us really quick. So the populations we serve, the communities we serve, were the ones who were being the most impacted. You know, and it started off, you know, I want to use the word innocently, but it was it was a real quick pivot for us because there was a group of Indigenous youth that I was working with one-on-one uh, -on -one in, in, in athletics. And as soon as the pandemic hit, you know, unfortunately, some of their food needs weren't going to be met because... You know, we were bringing food. We would feast together. We would, you know, we would enjoy a meal together. So that wasn't going to be possible anymore with the closure of public facilities, schools, and um, city amenities. So I was able to quickly scramble, you know, get, and it wasn't the best thing, but it, it essentially it amounted to subway food cards. And, you know, we did that once, we did it twice, and we realized that the need in community was only increasing as these closures were starting, as the virus was continuing to spread. Now, as a lone nonprofit and individual, there's only so much you can sustain. So luckily for me at the time, I was able to partner with uh, an agency uh, with Calsa Aid, and we joined up and started to do large food security projects south of the Fraser. And that's important because we, you know, south of Fraser, we're dealing with the most diverse range of racialized communities. Um, just the sheer number that we're dealing with, not currently existing, but that's monthly changing and expanding as well. And so <clears throat> peak, I would say, you know, within a very short period of time, we were able to deliver food and we started to hear back from agencies who weren't being served yet. Because you have to remember early pandemic, the government hadn't announced yet that they were going to be supporting food banks. Uh, people were the food banks, uh, urban missions were still trying to figure out where they were going to get food from. 
because they had a lot of them had closed their doors because they weren't getting uh, foodstuffs anymore. So when they reached out to us and we were in turn able to fulfill what they needed to provide for their clients, um, we were providing aid to about anywhere between that 2,500 to 3,000 range per pe of people per week. And that's a, strong, a huge number for just, you know, in-kind services. And so at, I would say at peak, we were at that number. And then when the, the government started to actually, not when they announced the funding, but when that funding actually made its way to the food banks, that's a critical part too, because there's one thing to announce it. It's one thing when they can actually use that funding to go and get the food that they need. Um, I'd say there was a gap of about probably one and a half to two months where we were pretty much the sole provider for a lot of agencies. And once those agencies were able to get supplies, our uh, our numbers did decline. But because we'd already done a lot of the work, we were able to identify uh, and, and, and tailor our food security work to make sure that the people who had individual needs, cultural needs, uh, health, medical needs, uh, mobility challenges, that we were able to tailor our response specific to those people that were perhaps if there could be a you know a spectrum of need that they were facing the, the most challenges so we really focused our efforts on them right it sounds like you've got a lot of people who are needing your services and you've like you said you had to pivot uh and that's a word that's coming up a lot is people are just you know they've had to pivot really just trying to focus in on the the biggest needs and maybe letting go of some things that they wouldn't have otherwise wanted to let go of so that's a great place to just kind of take a pause for a moment. Uh, I do want to uh, acknowledge our sponsors. So we're going to take a moment to hear from our sponsor, Humanity Financial, and come back. From Our Vantage Point is brought to you by Humanity Financial Management, a chartered professional accounting firm dedicated to supporting Canadian nation builders and movement makers in social sector organizations, social purpose businesses, and Indigenous communities and organizations. The humanitarians on our team work with our client partners to shift the balance of power through finance in advance of our shared goals, to transform this land into the most environmentally, socially, and economically equitable place on earth. Visit Humanity Financial Management online at humanityfinancial.ca. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, uh, and I acknowledge the. I want to acknowledge the tricky thing about that question as well about numbers and statistics, because statistics are important for us to grasp just how needed these services are and to establish the proper amount of funding. But they can also be dangerously dehumanizing, as we talked about uh, how data and inaccurate data can inform biases. And we, when we look at the statistics, we do know about vulnerable, low or no income families and individuals. The statistics we do have tend to show higher rates of folks who are racialized, who are immigrants, newcomers and refugees. But what are these numbers not showing? And you talked about that a little bit with there aren't enough numbers on, on immigrants and, and refugees and you know racialized people. And, but I'm wondering, when we talk about food insecurity, what does that actually look like? What are people actually dealing with on the ground? Yeah, you know, one of the challenges with populations not being accounted for, um, take the homelessness counts that happen across the region. That count does not, and I can share this with you because I've been very public with this, is that it doesn't account for a majority of the racialized population that we serve, who are unsheltered, who are street entrenched. Um, they've never been accounted for. 
And there are barriers, cultural barriers, language barriers that might indicate why they're not. They're not um, comfortable being approached by those doing it. And, and also, um, they're not in those facilities and spaces that traditionally, quote unquote, traditionally, that uh, someone who is street entrenched would be. Uh, for example, a shelter. A lot of the racialized community members do not access those shelters and cannot. So when we do food security, which also becomes a part of our outreach, uh, health outreach program, um, we are providing service and food aid to those individuals who are simply unaccounted for. So we are almost building up a, a, a database of our own, of individuals who need services who do not get them. So what we've been able to do is, you know, now we're a year and a half, near two years on into this pandemic, but we've been able to identify an entire group, a demographic within a larger demographic that has received food and is continuing to rely on those services. But then there's this unseen demographic that we've been serving. And that's really where our focus and attention is now to make sure not only that they're receiving the food aid, but that they're, um, in terms of numbers and demographics, that they're well represented and at the table when it comes to these decisions being made in terms of who needs help and when do they need it. For sure. Um, Zara, do you have anything to add there? I do, yeah. I think, um, you know, we, I already touched on earlier how hard it is for us to capture accurate statistics. I'm a big proponent for race-based data collection. I think it can be very valuable. But I do worry as well, because I think that the narratives that are drawn based on, particularly if we're looking at needs and we're looking at race and um, immigration status and things like that, it could be very easy to create a false narrative that um, is harmful. And, you know, there isn't really anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with these groups. What's wrong is with our systems and our systems are not designed for everyone. Our systems are designed for people who have typically had um, you know, ability to advocate, a better understanding of how our systems work, and they've got a leg up in terms of how to create the change that they're looking for. And so if we're able to change our systems in a way that more people can advocate for themselves, express their views, express their needs, access service, access information, we'll actually be able to create a much healthier society. And I don't think that I don't think that there is actually data that shows that immigrant groups remain in need for long, long, long periods of time. I, I wish I had the information in front of me, but Dan Hebert is a wonderful researcher at UBC and he does a lot of work on migration. And um, I remember being in the audience during one of his presentations and he was talking about how long it takes um, immigrant community members to be able to catch up to um, the middle class, basically, and it's within um, two generations. So, you know, if my parents came over, if they struggled, if I'm born and raised in Canada, I'm going to catch up pretty quickly and be able to um, start to thrive. So, you know, I think that that's a really important story that needs to be drawn out when we collect data, um, rather than uh, the negative stereotypes that often you hear in the news or, you know, uh, people without very much information about what the lived experience is and what the trajectory is of racialized and immigrant groups could um, could hear instead, which could be a more positive thing. And this really changes how this research is conducted. This it's another thing, uh, you know, Zara brings up is that, uh, you know, that, that she's reminding me of is that 
we really have to change how we're acquiring this data, how we're accessing community, and how we are approaching communities. Uh, you know, I really do see that this shifts the landscape on a lot of these, whether it's race-based data that we're collecting, uh, the research we're conducting. Um, you know, it, 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 it will and it should change because if we're relying on these demographics and, you know, we, you only need to get a politician a mic for 30 seconds. They start talking about diversity and how wonderful it is, um, <laughs> you know, but then we have to be in service of that, 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 dem- that demographic that's providing us with all this richness of culture. And by not tailoring our approach in terms of research and data collection, we're not in service of it. And we do end up in this cycle where year after year, we don't account for populations and those populations seem to be the very ones that have the the greatest needs. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, to add to that, I think it, it's, um, it is a double-edged sword because we, I feel like we need that data in order to be able to justify funding mm-hmm. you know, as a nonprofit organization. We need to have all of those statistics to show the need. Um, but again, when those same statistics are interpreted by oftentimes the general public, it paints um, a negative picture about certain communities who simply need an opportunity to be able to uh, live their best life on, in, in this area, you know, on these lands. And, and that's simply all it is. So I think when you ask, you know, what are the numbers not showing? The numbers aren't showing the story. They're not showing the settlement journey. They're not showing the difference in privilege of an English speaker and a non-English speaker. They're not showing the, um, the, the challenges and sometimes the systemic racism that newcomer and racialized communities have to deal with in order to find their roots in Canada. And that comes right down to accessing emergency food and food security. You know, and whether or not there are, there's information, there's opportunity for them to, let's say, meet the nutritional needs of their children if they're going through a tough time so that their children can compete equally well in school and perform well and have that, that pathway into higher education, let's say, or, you know, a professional career that most of us want for our children. You know, the, the story behind the numbers is, is, is missing the way that we're collecting the numbers now. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, oftentimes the people themselves are missing. And so the, um, the numbers are not complete. Yeah. That concept that you brought up earlier or the, uh, research that you brought up earlier about how long it takes somebody to, you know, really establish themselves in an, in a new country, you know, a lot of us would probably imagine it would be, you know, a decade or, you know, something like that, but it's, it's multiple generations and, at that point, it's not even about their, in, to a certain extent, it's not even about well, their well-being, it's about their children's well-being, right? Who are they do, Who are they moving for? Who are they uprooting for, right? Yeah, I can certainly confirm that was the reality for my parents. You know, they came here yeah. in the 70s and they didn't come here um, expecting necessarily to be able to work in their own profession that they had been trained for. They knew that they were going to have to struggle, but they wanted um, better opportunities for their children, you know, which we've been able to afford and we're really grateful for. Um, but that is often as how long it takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the stigma alone associated with, well, food security, food insecurity to express a need for a community that has or, or individuals who have newly arrived. 
it's tremendous. And, and that's yet another thing that we saw in, unfortunately, we saw ample evidence of during the pandemic. Uh, because, you know, uh, as Zara will tell you, and I can tell you that when you're dealing directly with community, that's the first thing you, you start to pick up on is that there is this genuine stigma. It's laden with stigma that people have an, almost an inability to just simply express a need when it comes to, you know, something that's so vital, such as food. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't imagine... The spaces that comes from, I imagine, has something to do with, you know, living up to that model minority, you know, a, a lot of preconceived notions of how they need to act and behave and how they can't be. And, and for some, they don't want to be burdensome, you know, a lot of misconceived notions of what their 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 role is in this new country. And so we, we saw plenty of that during the pandemic. No kidding. That's a that's a huge theme uh, coming up is is um, stigma and preconceived notions and that touches on my next question uh, because we know based on conversations that we've had together um, there are preconceived notions about refugees being a drain on the economy quote unquote which just doesn't really reflect the big picture it shows the wrong messages being shared from the data we've gathered which we've also talked about um, do you have any ideas how we can change that narrative and Zara, you mentioned the uh, importance of self-advocacy. Do you want to share anything more about that? Yeah, you know, it's it's really um, it's really interesting to see the differences in various neighborhoods across Alfan, where there tends to be more uh, recent immigrants. People generally seem to ask for less um, from, you know, a civic government or um, or from the neighborhood house. I know that when I was growing up, and this is maybe just a little bit more personal, but you know, if, if I was in a situation where I was able to advocate, as soon as somebody told me, I've heard it multiple times, but as soon as I was told, I'm a brown woman, by the way, but as soon as I was told, your family should just be grateful to be here, it, it made me not want to ask for anything again for a really, really, really long time. Because it is it is because of that stigma that Okra mentioned earlier, and I think Rowan was embedded in your question, you know, it's, I guess, if you scratch a little bit deeper, it's a question of who belongs in Canada, in Vancouver, in Metro Vancouver, who has a right to be here, who has a right to advocate. And um, I think that more work needs to be done around um, equity to do with advocacy and self-advocacy, so that we create an environment in which uh, more diverse people feel comfortable that they can advocate without hearing comments like that, because that will, it will shut somebody up pretty quickly. And really, you know, the neighborhood house has been advocating quite a lot, South Van neighborhood house for food security in South Vancouver. In an ideal world, you know, in another handful of years, if we do a good job as the neighborhood house for South Vancouver, we'll need to advocate a lot less. And I will step well into the background because the community will have the connections and um, a good understanding and the confidence of knowing how to navigate the systems so that we'll see more local residents out there advocating for themselves. Better organization, better voice, better agency. That's that's ultimately long term what I'd like to see um, happen across South Vancouver. And to me, that's what success will look like. If, um, you know, on the journey towards more equitable engagement of communities across Metro Vancouver. And perhaps another perspective or a way to look at this, too, is if you retrospectively look at the response uh, when it came to food insecurity during the pandemic in our region, 
a lot of it, a significant portion of it, was spearheaded and led it, led by racialized individuals. So obviously Zara uh, in the Vancouver area, but over here, I mean, I already talked to you about the work we were doing, uh, Kalsa Aid, Dokhnuwaransa, um, that is a good water that actually started a food bank in the midst of a pandemic uh, to respond to communities' needs. Um, diversity, you know, again, dealing with new immigrants, being able to respond to those uh, those tailored uh, or having a tailored response to uh, varying needs of, of an immigrant community. So a lot of these responses were led by racialized individuals and organizations, and they've had huge impact on how food is delivered and how the needs of community are, are starting to be well represented. So Upkar, you just mentioned that, you know, a, a lot of the uh, most effective, I, I believe this is, I, I'm getting this right, some of the most effective uh, resources for these communities are uh, led by people who understand them uh, or who understand those struggles, right? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, and, and I don't know if that was something that was, were people empowered to do that or did they really make sure that their voices were heard so they could do it. So were they self-empowering? I'm not going to infer what everyone went through. I do have a good insight into most of those relationships. I know Zara and I talked during the pandemic. I know her eyes were on the landscape already. And so I can only imagine, you know, the heavy lifting that she would have had to do to ensure that that, you know, the, the population there was being served. I know that in, in our case, it was simply a case of, of, of getting up and doing it. We, we couldn't wait to be empowered to do it. We had to go and do it. We had to deliver the food right to the places that needed it the most, the individuals that needed it the most, and make sure that whatever we were providing was in concert with what their true needs are. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, but... Okay. I, I want to just jump in here for a sec because I really love what you're saying. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, in, in normal times, generally speaking, we have to know how to navigate the system in order to get things done. But when the pandemic hit, the system paused. It was kind of stuck. And perhaps that is part of the reason that the the response was, as you describe it, Okur, because um, without, if you don't have to wait for the system, then people can just go and do and people know how to do. We know what our communities need and we can, if there's room, we can just go in and do things. And I don't know if that's if that's right or not, but it's just something that popped in my head as I was hearing you. No, absolutely. I, 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 you know, that, that's such a great way to put it, that the system paused because <clears throat> that's exactly what seemed to happen. Um, the system structures, frameworks that I think everyone were was relying on for so long, well, suddenly it wasn't there. And you had to just, you know, bootstrap the entire project until they could unpause and just say, okay, now where, where, where can we, you know, and, and I will give government this, I will give credit here is that it seems to me that they went to the agencies, individuals and organizations that were doing the work and doing it effectively and empowered them to continue doing that work, you know, from, from, my vantage point that's what it seemed to be and that that's a much better approach and i think and i hope that that's 
one of the key takeaways for uh, funding bodies and for government is that you know that you have experts, you have Zara, you have diversity, you have these new organizations that have created themselves in the midst of the pandemic. So they're born of this climate. Um, so it continue to empower them, continue to empower these agencies to deliver directly to communities' needs rather than try to reinvent the wheel and unpack what happened. So I, I want to just chat a little bit because, we, you know, we've talked a lot about barriers at this point, uh, and we've talked a lot about, you know, what's actually been helping those barriers, help get through those barriers. Uh, and that's kind of come up as uh, funding the, the right uh, programs um, that are actually addressing the most immediate needs. and better data, uh, making sure that we're, we're seeing numbers that actually reflect the communities in need, checking our biases about communities who are uh, street entrenched or uh, in poverty or need uh, support with food security. Uh, and then I also kind of want to talk about collaboration because I understand that you, you two have collaborated quite a bit over, you know, at least the pandemic. Do you want to talk about uh, what that's looked like and how it's helped you to actually get services out to, to people? Well, as, as an agency, as I mentioned, that isn't, you know, it wasn't a mandate for us, food, you know, addressing food insecurity. It was, it was never a mandate for us. I mean, of course, we, because we work with at-risk at risk populations, we were providing food, but in a, you know, transportation delivery um, setup, no, that was not our, our, our thing. And so we very quickly realized that the need that we were fulfilling was so great that we wouldn't be able to sustain it long beyond that. So uh, we were very, very thankful to have a relationship with um, an organization like Khalsa Aid that was able to join with us and, and deliver um, food where it was necessary. Yeah, self the Fraser, but it wasn't just self the Fraser. I mean, we, you know, in conjunction with Khalsa Aid, uh, you know, providing the food, we were able to help provide facility to do food hamper packaging at a local farm. It was, it was very much a, a grassroots effort. My uncle happened to own a farm with uh, an unused cannery at the time that was shut down because of the pandemic. So it was a large space. And so Casa Aid was able to come in there with their food and we had volunteers packing boxes. And then those boxes were loaded onto a truck that someone volunteered and that truck was driven to the downtown east side and delivered to a uh, local migrant a society that looks after the welfare of, of the migrant community. So it was you know, all these partnerships just sprung up at, at very organically and based on need. And ultimately, it's it's those kind of relationships and supports and partnerships that led us to uh, having, you know, I hate to use the word success, but ultimately, yeah, it was success in ensuring that people's food needs were being met. And for us as well, I think out of out of the crisis, you know, this crisis when a lot of people weren't um, able to go to work, uh, people wanted to do something to help. We were able to partner with sort of unusual suspects and um, create tremendous collaboration that we hadn't predicted. And it's been really, it's been really, really one of the positives, one of the few positives that's come out of COVID uh, for us. But right in the early days, when I realized there was going to be a major food security issue, one of the first phone calls that I made was to the United Way. And um, United Way was a tremendous asset and ally, helped us with some funding, helped us make the right connections so that when we were doing emergency food, 
we were actually able to get more nutritious food supplemented from what we were receiving. Thankfully, we had a partnership with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, and so they supplied us with some staple food, and we were able to get some more food um, to, to add to those packages of food that we could give to the community, members who were in need. There were farmers in South Vancouver who gave us potatoes and onions that we added to the packages every week. Lots of um, volunteers from BCAA who weren't using their vehicles. And so they were able to pick up the food and, and transport it for us. Um, lots of various different types of partnerships that came from United Way. And as we've transitioned into more of the, the food hub and spoke model, we're working with several different organizations as spokes where we do a lot of the, the food packaging, provide it to them, and then they give it out to community members in neighborhoods across South Vancouver where it's closer to, to home for people. So we're, again, trying to create more efficiency. We're trying to create centralized systems so that all of the organizations or individuals working in the food security space don't have to do all of the same um, busy work. So we're trying to make it easier for, for people all across South Vancouver and our partner organizations all across Vancouver. So that's been really fantastic. I think uh, our connection, of course, and mine, you know, in terms of new collaborators, it's been a lot of exchanging ideas. And for me anyway, for moral support, um, figuring out <laughs> if there's a different way we could go about things or, you know, if there's ideas that we could share and, and build from each other and really just particularly in the, on the tougher days to know that there was somebody else who was trying to do things a little bit differently. And I w we weren't all alone, you know, it was, it was uh, very reassuring to have that uh, support alongside what we were trying to do. So yeah, collaboration has been, been fantastic. And all of our partner agencies in terms of our funders have also been really supportive because they understood partly Rowan, because we had some data about the unmet needs of the neighborhood um, or neighborhoods they were able to show up and uh, mobilize some resources so that we could we could do what we were trying to do in the best way that was possible, um, given the funding that we had. So we had some support from Food Banks BC, City of Vancouver, a number of others as well. That's awesome. It's <laughs> all fantastic. I am looking at the time and thinking that's a great place to leave it on that positive note of collaboration and, you know, at least having some of the resources <laughs> that you need to do this work well. And you are doing this work well. I'm really inspired by by what you two are, are doing. And Upcar, you've mentioned a number of times that food, you know, doing food security work was never the intention, but it popped up out, out of uh you know, necessity. And it's really amazing how much you've rallied to, to take this on. If there's one thing each of you would like to leave with our listeners, what would it be? Well, I, you know, I've been reflecting on this conversation as we've been chatting. And I think um, our sector, the nonprofit sector talks about grassroots approaches to almost everything we do. We talk about it a lot. Um, but I would say a lot of our systems remain top down. And some of that is because of the way that our funding is structured, because of who's viewed as experts. There's a lot of reasons why things happen the way that they do. But as we're moving into a world where we are talking about racial justice and we're talking about systems change, I think we need to remember that people themselves are the experts and we need to trust them. We need to create opportunities for leadership positions for the communities who are actually benefiting from a lot of the programs and services that we set out to do. And we need to make that space so that the people who we know are the experts can actually also be the leaders. And I'm seeing a little bit of that, you know, in, in Ufer's example, in the examples that I've given with a South Bay neighborhood house. And 
I'd like that to be one of the learnings and for us to, as a sector, figure out how we can step away from the traditional ways that we've always done things and create that base for um, maybe the power dynamics to shift a little bit and to provide more respect and recognition and opportunity for people who might be from equity seeking groups to lead the work and the solutions for themselves and their own communities. Yeah, absolutely. Give the people the power, right? Upkar, do you have anything that you'd add? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's it's obvious why. I mean, it's evident there that you know why I turned to Zara for her wisdom and leadership in this in this arena and, and others too. But in addition to that, just what she said, I just want to echo that that you know the work we've done to date, that the tangible portion, the measurable portion, is perhaps you know how much food went where, how many individuals received it, you know what were the costs of doing it. I think the net benefit of it is that we've truly empowered an entire swath of the population that has had no voice on many different issues. And perhaps through this pandemic and through the challenges around food insecurity and our ability successfully to, you know, pivot and respond to it as a collective from Vancouver right out to who knows where, you know, we were serving out to the past the Fraser Valley, that we were able to empower and give voice to a large segment of the community. So my, I would implore, like I said before, governments and agencies to to recognize that it's the voice of those communities, as Zara was saying, is that, that that's where the wisdom is, that's where the guidance is. And let's not regressively go back and figure out how we can do it better, uh, but figure out what worked and, and give more opportunity for those voices to lead us in the future. That's awesome. That's a, that's a great suggestion for folks who, who have the ability to, to listen and, and you know, hand that power over a little bit. For, for people who are the average person who's listening in, how can they get involved to support your initiatives, you know, whether it's ECCS or uh, Neighborhood House? You know, where can they donate? How can they volunteer? You know, that kind of thing. How would you like people to get involved? What would be the most helpful for you? I'll just go first. Um, I know for us, please do check out our website if and when we get it up and running at eccsociety.org. Uh, it shouldn't be too much longer, but uh, email is always the best way just to be in touch or our social media. Uh, we, we are up on social media under engaged communities on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, but email info at eccsociety.org. But in and above us, there's multiple agencies that are doing amazing work, uh, including, like I said, Calsa Aid's doing great work. Book Nawadansab started a food bank. Uh, there's community garden plots popping up in Surrey. Diversity has really come forward and stepped up with massive food security programs. So there's a lot of agencies, and you know, uh, whether you just want to help us out or get plugged into one of those organizations, definitely do reach out. Sarah, what about you? Yeah, for South Van, I mean, if you live in South Vancouver, then please definitely contact South Van Neighborhood House and figure out how best um, you can get involved. Our website is southvan.org and you can email info at southvan.org as well. We're always looking for donations for our food security programs as well as other programs. Both in-kind and, and cash donations are always really, really valued. I'd say also, you know, um, if you don't live in South Vancouver, reach out to a neighborhood house near you. There's quite a few across Vancouver. There's a few in Surrey. There's Burnaby Neighborhood House as well. So, you know, take a look at what's in your neighborhood. 
And neighbors can, can make a lot of positive impact on the lives of other neighbors. And I really love it when there's that sort of um, community connectedness. And sometimes there's a role for an organization in that. Sometimes there isn't, you know, figure out if there is a, a grassroots type of organization in your neighborhood, reach out, make a phone call and figure out if there is a good, strong role for the, the end participant who benefits from programs in the leadership of those programs and go from there. You know, I think most people know what they're looking for. They know what's going to be a good fit for them. And uh, I encourage everyone to just volunteer. It, to me, it doesn't matter where. It just, it makes us all feel good. And it makes a big, big difference. Even if you don't really necessarily understand, answering phones for two hours a day uh, might not seem like much, but it can make a huge difference to an organization or a group of residents who are trying to make a difference. Nice. That's that's actually a good opportunity to mention. Go volunteer bc.bc.ca, uh, where you can check out volunteer opportunities if you're looking for something and you're not sure what fits. There are uh, There are opportunities there. And I just want to thank you both so much for your time, Zara and Upkar. It has been an absolute pleasure getting to learn from you about your work with some of our more vulnerable communities and all the work you and your teams do to support them. These are things we don't get to hear about often in the media, and it was really wonderful to be able to get a picture of what your work actually entails. So it means a lot you would take time out of your busy schedules to help inform us on what you do. I'd like to thank you all listening in and hope you enjoyed our conversation with Zara Ismail and Upkar Tatlay Singh. We centered food insecurity in this discussion, but really touched on a lot of important topics from resource distribution to racialized identities and how everything weaves together to create a very complex tapestry. I wish them the best moving forward in this work and hope we can collaborate again in the future. Vantage Point is a not-for-profit organization based in Vancouver, BC that works to uplift the province's not-for-profit sector and its leadership. You can learn more at thevantagepoint.ca on our minty fresh new website, and I would like to thank our sponsor, Humanity Financial Management, once again. If you are interested in supporting our work in education, consulting, and not-for-profit advocacy, please consider an organization or individual membership by going to thevantagepoint.ca slash membership. Benefits include discounts on our educational programs, opportunities to have your say in our advocacy and sector development work, and so much more. If you liked this podcast, please leave us a rating or comment on the podcast listening platform of your choice. Thanks again, and I hope to talk at you next time.